Okay. So reading from Exodus chapter 32 from verse 1 until Nick raves at me. So when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bound down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on, on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tables were the work of God. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is, sound, there is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it in the on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such a great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <coughs> Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. 
the Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord, to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. So let's pray as Nick comes to unfold that message to us. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for leaving it with us to teach and to guide. And Lord, we thank you for people like Nick who have been blessed with the skill to bring that message to us, Lord, to unfold that message. And we just pray uh, as he brings this to us, Lord, that we, each of us, hear something new. Each of us hear something that we can take and uh, apply to our lives, Lord. Um, for that is something that is great to us, Lord. Your word is here to guide and to teach. And we pray for Nick now as he comes. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn back with me for a moment and turn back to chapters to Exodus 20. And I've come uh, the last two days out of meeting with the AFCC and I just um, want to ask you to remember them in your prayers. There's a lot to, lot to do and I'm thankful for being able to um, to bring change there. Um, but it's been a bit of a mental change of gears to come back and then get my head round and uh, carrying on get my head round Exodus 32 and Exodus 20. But turn back to Exodus 20, um, page 77 in your Bibles, because we're going to look at this second commandment. Actually, we could go back. God spoke all these words, says the beginning of Exodus 20. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There's a little preface to the ten words, the ten commandments. The first one is you shall have no other gods before me. And the next one is you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. In heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not <clears throat> bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. <clears throat> Punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. At first glance, the, the second commandment seems almost trivial in the light of the first one. You shall have no other gods besides me. It's, it would seem that once you've got that sorted, you'd have the second one sorted, wouldn't it? Um, you shall not make for yourself any, any kinds of Im image. And it seems even less important perhaps for us today. It doesn't seem likely that when you go home, you think, actually, um, I want to pray to the Lord about something. I think I'll just see if I've got any bits of leftover wood in the garden um, and I'll get my chisels out um, and, I'll, and I'll knock up, you know, a calf or something or a, um, a, a little statue and then I'll get, see if there's some paints left over in the shed and I'll, 
um, and, and I'll paint it. It seems really unlikely, doesn't it? Seems like a commandment from another era. Pictures, as we've seen this morning, in, in all its glorious irony in, in Exodus. So it's amazing, isn't it, to think that they've heard this command not that long before. They've heard this command, you shall not make for yourself an, an image. Um, and in chapter 24, you can go back and read this for yourself, Moses and Aaron, and Aaron's two sons, um, Nahab, Nadab and Abihu, I'm not sure I've got that right, um, and the 70 elders of Israel, they've been invited up Mount Sinai, and they have seen God. They, they have seen God. It's, it's, it's one of the most remarkable little stories in the whole of the Bible, actually, and it just kind of like it's tucked away um, there in, in Exodus. And the irony is this. After they've seen God, then Moses has to go on up the mountain and, and receive instructions for how, how the Lord, how the Lord Yahweh, God, is to be worshipped. And God is giving him instructions for the tabernacle and the priests and the altar uh, and the offerings and all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, back in the camp, the people are so restless that um, Aaron is fashioning a golden calf. It's an astonishing story. And it just struck me as we read it. Um, Moses says to Aaron, what, what did these people do to you? <laughs> what did this, I, I love this story. You know, Aaron says, uh, what did, uh, he said, what did you do? And, and, and he says, oh, the people, they just gave me all their, um, just gave me all their gold stuff. And I, I, and I melted it, I put it in the fire and out popped this calf. He says, it's one of them, it is one of the funniest stories uh, in the whole Bible. And Moses says, what did they do to you? What did they do to you to, that you led them into such great sin? And Aaron says, don't be angry, he says. You know how prone these people are to, to, to evil. And they said to be makers gods. And as for this fellow Moses, we don't know where he's gone. So I told them, whoever has any jewelry, take it off. So Aaron sees the, the people running wild. And what does he do? He tries to make worship more palatable, palatable to them. This is not in the written sermon, this is an aside. Okay, um, but it just struck me here in the... Um, when the people are, are falling into sin, um, we try to make the Christian life, it's a temptation for church leaders. When, when the people are, are, are prone to sin and they look like they're about to fall into sin, um, we make worship easier for them. Make worship easier for them. We, we, we compromise. Don't know how many elders have actually got in here this morning. Yeah, I thought that. It's just me, isn't it? Um, maybe they'll hear it somewhere else, but it's a temptation for church leaders. We, we cannot make... It's not our job um, to follow Aaron and to make worship somehow easier, make the Christian life more palatable for you, or to make God smaller than he really is. But that's an aside. Is there anything relevant then in this second commandment um, for us today? You shall not make for yourself an, an image. Well, I think there is. And I think the reason is because even as New Testament believers, we, we do make images of the Lord. 
We don't make them in the shed um, out of bits of wood, but we make a mental picture. Even if it's not a visual picture, we, we have a, a mental image of the Lord. Um, and when you go to pray, for example, you, you have an idea in your mind of, of what God is what, and what he is like. And the American writer um, of the last century, A.W. Tozer, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I don't think that's true. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the, is the most important thing about us. So you may not have a mental, uh, you know, a, a visual picture in your mind, but when you come to God, you have a... You have a picture, if you'll allow me to use that word. You, you have a, a bundle of ideas about who you think it is. And that bundle of ideas, Tozer says, is the most important thing about you because it will, it will influence all aspects of your faith and therefore all aspects of your spiritual life. So we do need to look at idol worship from this commander and see what we can learn. Uh, and the first thing I think to understand is that idol worship is always demeaning. And by demeaning, I mean it, it brings God dishonor. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it, when you think about the calf, but whenever you picture God as, uh, as something created, it makes him smaller. Any representation you would make uh, of God is going to be a misrepresentation which makes it difficult to teach the kids, doesn't it? Um, and this does not mean, I think, ultimately, that you can't make pictures of um, Jesus, um, that those videos that we use are wrong. But I think it does mean that we've got to be really careful to be as, as accurate as we can. And, and, and even in those, we kind of quite often we, we misrepresent Jesus because he looks like a white Westerner, um, not as a Middle Easterner. But as soon as you picture the Lord as anything in creation, you have misrepresented represented him because he is the creator so let's think about the, the golden calf for a moment we don't know how good a, um, Aaron was at casting there's obviously a, a considerable amount of effort gone into this I wonder how big he was um, but they cast this image of a, uh, of a golden calf and then it says he, he kind of used a tool on it uh, tidy it up a bit we don't know whether it had much artistic value because we don't know how good a sculptor Aaron was, but it was solid gold, so it had some kind of monetary value. But, but inevitably, as soon as you represent God as something in creation, you have misrepresented him. So this, this image of the calf, it's small. Small by comparison to God anyway. God is, God is immense. It is inanimate. But God is alive, and, and God is spirit. It's location-bound. It's stuck in one place, but God is everywhere, um, fully present. It is created, but, but God is uncreated. It is new. It has a, a, a lifespan, but God is eternal. He does not have a lifespan. He doesn't have a beginning and an end. It is entirely of itself impotent, but God is omnipotent. He can do within creation whatever he pleases. It is destructible, but God is indestructible. It's of minor value. 
but God is of infinite worth. It is blind and deaf and mute, but our God sees and hears and speaks. How on earth does Aaron think that he can make an image of Yahweh, the Lord? Because that's what he thinks it is. He says, he takes it to Israel and says, this is your God who who brought you out of Egypt. How incredibly presumptuous is that? How incredibly stupid. But there are two things. One is how then, how important that we get a right picture of God. And the other is just to recognize the same the same problem in our own hearts. How quick are we to, to fall? Become more uh, aware of this as I go on, that you're sitting here, and you're not sitting in church, and then you realize you've just had some inappropriate thought. How quick are we? Or put it, let's put it another way. How long will it be when you've exited here this morning before you, before you sin next? Not before the day's out, is it? But how do we get the the right picture, if I can use that word, in our minds? Well, God has already created his own authorized, as it were, image and put it into creation. And it is you and it is me. You know that. God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. So there already is, is, um, God has made a way for him to be imaged in creation and, and it is in Human beings, male and female. And I guess that's why Paul can say this in Philippians 4. Um, He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. There There are amazing things that human beings do because they're made in the image of God. But often, and always, to some greater or lesser degree, it is obscured and, and warped by sin. It's like having an old master painting, but you've been hung in the pub for 150 years, and it's covered in nicotine and, and soot, and the varnish has gone cloudy, and you can't see the true image. But thankfully, there is a better image than just you or me, because there is a better human being. There is a sinless human being in the person of Jesus. Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation, that's strong language, isn't it, of his being. And so Jesus can say, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So let's make that practical. Don't draw a visual picture in your mind of the Lord. I'm not sure how many, how many people do, and I won't ask you to stick your hand up. Um, but if you've got some kind of visual representation, see if you can let it go. Because by definition, it's too small. It demeans him. So where are we going to look for a perfect image? We're going to look at Christ. Not a picture of Christ, not a sculpture of Christ on the cross, but we're going to look to Christ 
in the word of God. So idol worship is demeaning, it demeans God, but idol worship is degenerating. In other words, it, it, it makes us worse. It makes us less too. It impacts your life and makes it less than it should be. So in, in Psalm 115, um, you can look this up. There's a little contrast between, between God and idols. And the psalmist says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. God is the most free and the most able of beings. But the idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? So if we start with the uh, Exodus uh, 20, verse 4, the second command, what happens is you start by making an idol. You make something, an idol, an image. Then you bow down and worship it. And then the psalmist says you become like it. If you make an idol and you worship it, you become like it. So I'm not imagining that you have made an idol out of your car or your house um, or your salary or your position, but you might have done. But that really was, was the lesson from last week. This is about making God less than, less than he is. So if your picture of God is that God is an old man on a cloud, so his vision is, his vision is clouded, he's forgetful, He's a bit hard of hearing. He's a bit unpredictable in his temper. His, his strength is failing and you can't be entirely sure whether he's going to act or not. If that's your picture of God, then you start to worship him according to that picture. You start to worship sporadically. His vision is not so good. So it doesn't matter really if you sin. And actually, if you, if, you, if you go away in a corner and do it in private, God's not really going to see because he's a bit myopic. Um, and his cataracts are coming in and he doesn't really see. Well, if that's your picture of God, then he's forgetful. So he needs constant reminders. So you feel you've got to constantly remind him of, of, of all your needs. And you go to him in a kind of paranoid kind of way. God, don't forget me. God, don't forget me. But equally, if he's forgetful, then he's not going to mind if you forget him for a little bit. If you wander off, disappear out of church, don't get a home group for a while. And if you think he's an old man and he's getting a bit hard of hearing, then you'll feel like you have to shout and stamp your feet to make him hear. And you'll, you'll try to develop special prayer strategies with special names. If you think he's a bit unpredictable, then you'll decide I can be a bit unpredictable too. There's no need to keep control of my mouth or my temper. And if his strength in fail, is, is failing, he's, he's an old man. So you keep another, a couple of gods going at the same time. You keep Mammon and Aphrodite on the side. Mammon, the god of money, and Aphrodite, the god of sex. So if you've got the wrong picture, do you see, you get... Um, you worship according to your picture, but then you become like the God that you worship. 
You, your worship becomes sporadic, forgetful, lacking compassion, unpredictable, lacking any real power, constantly polluted, um, going off to a bit of money worship on the side because you don't really real, think he's got it in control. And you go off for a bit of sex worship for your kicks because you don't really reckon that God's boundaries mean anything anymore. So it's really important that this picture that isn't a picture that we have of God is, is, is accurate. And so our picture of God has to be constantly refined by the word of God. We need to keep looking at the reality of the Lord as he is revealed in his word and as he is revealed in Christ. And when you look at him, you become like him. It's a principle. We've said this before. You become like the thing that you worship. Um, as we gaze on his kingly likeness, so are, what's the word? So are, so our faces display his likeness. That's how we look on his kingly brightness. So our faces display his likeness, ever changing from glory to glory. Mirrored here, may our lives tell the story. When you, when you look into the face of Christ, it comes from 2 Corinthians 3, that, that verse. We, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When you're looking at God, and when you're looking at the Lord as he really is, when you bow down and worship, you become like, you become like what you worship. He is true and noble and right and sure and lovely, those things that Paul commended. Idol worship is demeaning, demeaning to the Lord. Idol worship is, de is um, degenerating to us. Idol worship finally is, is, is dangerous. Because it arouses the Lord's jealousy. It's really interesting that this commandment, the first commandment just says, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. You shall not bow down and worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me. Keep my commands. The Lord is, is, this is a dangerous business. I guess the Exodus 2 tells us it's a life or, or death kind of business. It sounds horrendous to us, doesn't it? That those who've got involved in the wrong kind of worship, who actually who've tried to worship God through the wrong kind of means, should be, should be killed by the priests strapping, strapping on a sword. And it, it sounds a bit outrageous to our, to our ears. But accurate worship of God is a life or death matter. Because God is a, is, is a jealous God. He's not prepared to be uh, worshipped in some way that is not as he really is. Christianity, uh, the faith, is it's a life. It's always a life or death matter. It, it is not... Um, it's not an optional extra, it's not a lifestyle choice, it's a matter of whether after death you, you live 
an eternal life with, with Christ in glory or, or whether you live an eternal death of, uh, of horrible punishment for the rest of eternity. It, it is absolutely a life or death matter. And so the, the Lord is jealous for accurate worship of himself through the means that, that he has provided. Now it sounds for a moment that like, the, like the Lord is jealous about his image. Like some, like some YouTuber. In a human being, that kind of jealousy for one image, for one's image, is a horrible, self-centered, self-inflation. But in God, it is just an invitation into reality. It's a phrase we came across last time around. It's an invitation into. Reality, he is the best thing that could ever happen to you. He is the best thing that is out there. He is the best and greatest and holiest and purest and most wonderful thing. He is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. And worship of him, true worship of him is the best thing you can do. It is the best life for you. And so you could say that he's jealous for your well-being. Because he is. He's jealous for his own worship, but, but, but not in a self-inflating kind of way. But he's, he's, he's jealous for his best worship because he's jealous for your well-being. And for your best life. Talk all about finding your best life is a phrase hesitate to use, but your best life is in worship. Worship's not just standing around singing, is it? But your best life is in worship of Almighty God. And the Lord is jealous for that because he wants the best for you. So jealous, he says, that he'll punish the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation and, and uh, show love to a thousand generations who of those who love me. It won't surprise you that kind of, you know, most of the commentators just gloss over this passage and move on to the next bit. Um, so they struggle to get their, their heads around it. But I'm pleased to be able to say, and I'm pretty convinced it's only true, this is one of those parts of the law of Moses that has gone. I don't think I've found that written down anywhere, but in Jeremiah, um, in the passage where God... Um, points Jeremiah to the new covenant. In those same verses, he says, in those days, people will no longer say the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Which is the kind of proverb of the day. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. I think that's a clear statement. And a similar statement comes in the prophet Ezekiel. Um, that whatever this means, it was part of the old covenant and it's not part of the new covenant. And I think what it meant under the old covenant was that those, for those who hated the Lord, usually then the, the, the kids will follow their parents and they will hate the Lord too. Um, and the Lord says, I, I will break that chain. I, I, will not kind of, I will not kind of make this chain of unbelief persist down the generations simply because your great-great-grandfather um, hated me. 
that kind of chain of unbelief will, I will break. But the chain of, of, the chain of knowing God, I, I will reinforce. But I think it's gone. It's gone under the, under the, it's the old covenant. We're now under the new covenant. But that doesn't, but parents, you know this, whatever you do affects your kids. Whatever you do affects your kids and they, they see more than anybody else whether your worship is real and wholehearted and flows out into character and interactions. So the Lord, have got to finish, haven't we? The Lord tells us what true worship is. So Moses, while Aaron was um, building his calf, um, Moses was getting instructions for the tabernacle. But the tabernacle itself was just a picture. It was just a picture of worshipping the Lord through Jesus, through Jesus Christ. We haven't got time um, to look at that. Let me move on. Move on to the next slide. So just a word about the word then. I find that the why questions of Christianity are often the hardest to answer. Um, Why does God do this? Quite often we're not let into the answer of that. Why does God reveal himself in two stages in two testaments? Um, Okay. Um, Because that reveals him best. Not sure I know the why. The, The questions, some of the why questions. But it's interesting, another question that I have been asked is why does God reveal himself in words? Why do we have God's word um, and, and not in pictures? Well, the answer is that God does actually reveal himself in pictures. The whole Old Testament is a picture book, really, of, of what is coming in the new. But always making the point that the pictures fall short. So God creates a, a, a priesthood to show that Jesus will be a priest. But he shows that the human priests just aren't up to the job. Uh, he creates a, a, a kingdom with a king. But we see that the kings fell too. He creates a sacrificial system where a, a, a lamb is, is, is sacrificed, but it doesn't really have the power to atone. God does speak in pictures all through the Old Testament. We, we get these, these pictures. But actually, the pictures, as we've said, they, they fall short of revealing who God really is, and they point the way. They just point the way to the real revelation of God, and that is in Jesus Christ. So pictures are always going to misrepresent God. And only words will do. Why does God reveal himself in words? Because otherwise he would be misrepresented. Only words would do. You can't draw a picture of God being invisible. But you can say it. We can't draw a picture of God being omnipotent, all-powerful, but you can say it. And you can worship him as such. We can't draw a picture of, being, of God being present everywhere. But we can talk about it and we can know it in everyday life. We can't draw a picture of God knowing all things. But we can talk about it and rest assured that it's true. So just to, to, finish, to draw to a conclusion, one day we will see God face to face. That's the good news. But until then, there are two things you should fix your eyes on. One is fix your eyes on Jesus. It's Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So let the, this is really your one takeaway for, for today. Let 
the true image of God written in scripture, let the words keep redefining your picture of God. So keep looking at Jesus. And keep, this is a lovely statement of Paul, I love this, keep, fix your eyes on what is unseen, not on what is seen. I love that, it's kind of sort of irony about it, fix your eyes on what is unseen. And he says this, we're therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, thanks Paul, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far awaits them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is, un- what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, our, our, our great Lord, you are, you are here with us this morning because you have all these qualities that cannot be pictured. If you were an animal, you, you couldn't be in here and, and the other church down the road. But because you are greater than any creature and you are spirit, you are here. And you are here with us. And because you're not a creature, you, you know us and you see us and you hear everything that goes on here this morning and you, you know our hearts. Because you are greater than creation, you can, you can move in any way, in any situation. This morning, you can change our circumstances. You can change our hearts. We invite you, Lord, to, to change our hearts, to give us a bigger picture of you that we'll worship you more accurately, more as you are. And because of that, we'll be changed. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.